Greetings, mountain bikers. Welcome to the MTB Jumper Podcast, the weekly audio show that helps you get the most out of your jumps, your trails, your gear, and of course, your bikes. I'm your host, Norman Peterson. Thanks for listening. I feature conversations with extraordinary riders, coaches, and industry leaders. We discuss free ride, dirt jumping, downhills, street and park, trials, skill development, bikes and gear, digging and building, strength and fitness, and much more. This week I talked with Kat Sweet. Kat's career goes all the way back to the early days of mountain biking as a pro downhiller in California. After her racing career, Kat became involved in youth mountain biking activities and recently created her own coaching company called Sweet Lines. In this interview, Kat shares some great stories from her racing days. We get into the subject of injuries and how to overcome them both mentally and physically. She shares her approach to facing and conquering new and scary features and jumps and much more. Let's get into it. Here it is, my interview with Kat Sweet. So I promote that kind of thing. Yeah. A lot of my girls have purple bars now and purple pedals. <laughs> nice. And flinging out their bikes. <laughs> cool, cool. So let's talk about when you got started with bicycles in general. So I got my first mountain bike in 1987. My dad bought it for me. He was a big road rider. So he bought me this gigantic 21-inch frame, fully rigid, specialized rock hopper, bright yellow. We called it Big Bird. Mm -hmm. So uh, I fell in love with the sport pretty early on. We mostly rode fire roads back then. So I would just eat crap all over the place on that bike. (laughs) Big long stem, all stretched out, no control. (laughs) But I loved it. I thought it was awesome. And then my first year of college, I joined the... San Diego State Mountain Bike Club. It was called Mud, Sweat, and Tears. Mud, Sweat, and Gears. Something like that. Wow. Yeah, we rode around fire roads. That's all we had. Nice. Any racing? I got into racing. So I was really big into skiing. Okay. So I kind of quit school for a while to become a full-time ski bum. Did that for 10 years. But skiing was my first love. I did that pretty intensively. Did skier cross racing and some big mountain contests and stuff. And then mountain biking was my cross training. And then somewhere along the way, I fell more in love with mountain biking than I did skiing. Mm. So I started racing mountain bikes probably in like 95. I tried racing cross country and realized pretty quickly that everybody was passing me on the uphills and I would have to pass them back on the downhills. So my friends kept saying, you need to try downhill racing. You need to try downhill racing. And I was like, no way. That sounds scary. (laughs) And then they finally talked me into a race and I totally fell in love with racing too. And I realized, oh, you're just staying in your own limits and pushing yourself. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is actually really, really fun. Sure. More of a, more of a time thing an individual sport versus a team thing. Yep. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I think one of my first downhill races, I like borrowed a bike Borrowed protective gear, had this really hilarious half shell and some moto pants someone lent me. It was at Squaw Valley. And we were Sorry, doing that. <laughs> we were doing like biker cross racing. I have a really great picture actually. Oh. It's like a Where's Waldo picture. Oh please. Oh my god, it's hysterical. So I was like, Yeah, I'm down who racing. Is that digitized I'm in the by chance? No, not not oh, yet. We need to digitize okay. it. But I'm in the Stargate with my little geeky <laughs> outfit, like nothing matched, mm-hmm. and my friends beside me. Yeah. We take off down the start ramp because it was a two two cross. Okay. So we head off down the start ramp. I eat crap off the start ramp, oh. face first in the dust, 
and there's a picture of her riding and me face down in the dirt. <laughs> and it's totally like, where's Wilder? You're like, where's Kat? She's got to be in there somewhere. Oh, my God. <laughs> but this is the best part. So she's worrying about me because we're, we're nice. We like each other. <laughs> So she's worried about me, and she eats crap on the next oh, corner. No. So I end up getting back up and passing her and winning the race. Oh. <laughs> and that was my very first downhill race at Squaw Valley. Wow. Probably 96, I think. Oh, nice. Oh. Wonderful. So you're from California? Grew up in California. Okay. Marin originally. Mm-hmm. I was in Tahoe for 10 years as well. Mm-hmm. So you get into downhill. Got into downhill. Mm-hmm. And any work in the industry, uh, in the bike industry? Um or were you you're doing other stuff? Or I was waiting tables at the time. Okay. I worked at the the top of Squaw Valley. What's your your What did you do in college? What's your? Well, I just graduated a couple of years ago. Oh, congratulations! So I went to seven different schools in the last like what twenty four years, <laughs> awesome. and I finally just graduated. Yeah. So I studied society, ethics, and human behavior. Oh, wonderful! And I made all my classes about the bike in some way. Uh-huh. So sustainability was pretty easy and obvious, uh-huh. and then my class class on Tupac Shakur. Turned into a class about scraper bikes, which turned into a scraper bike program for kids. And (laughs) in the course of three years, I had like 45 kids come through my program, earn their own bike, decorate their own bike, learn how to work on it. Wow. So that all came out of school. Okay. So organizing, organizing people around bikes is, uh, is a natural for you and you've been doing it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. That's definitely my passion. Started a Tripster Kids chapter in 2003 when I first moved up here and then worked for the Cascade Bicycle Club running their youth programs for eight years. Wow. And then started Sweet Lines in 2011 and just went full-time with that a year and a half ago. Okay. So Cascade, but you were, were you, would you say that you were primarily a mountain biker throughout the Cascade years? Yes. Okay. I was like the black sheep of the club. That's where I was going. That's where I was going with that. Because I, recru- I recruited a few converts, <laughs> uh-huh. which is good. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I was definitely the black sheep for uh, sure. Okay, so because that is primarily. I mean, I, I I think I years ago I did one or two really small mountain bike related get-togethers with Cascade people. Where were we? We were talking about how did we get off on that track? God, let's see. You asked <laughs> Sorry, what, I, what I, I did for work. <laughs> so I waited tables for many years to support my racing careers. Gotcha. Yeah, and then gotcha. when I moved up here, I started Trips for Kids and right. Cascade. And right, right, the that's Cascade when I got, thing. Yeah, that's when I got involved in the bike industry Yeah. when I moved up here. Okay, okay. Kind of officially involved yep. up here. Yeah. Yep. Started my own chapter of trips for kids mm-hmm. which is a nonprofit taking inner city kids mountain biking awesome which Ran i will that. put in the show notes oh cool so. it's actually not running right now though because i left oh. cascade so. okay yeah it's kind so of a bummer. Wait, there's no more trips for kids or there's no there's more? an international program okay. for sure but yeah. my chapter is no longer running yeah well some people will want to know about trips for kids in general it's a great program cool i wish someone would take over my chapter and build At it cascade. back up well, they just weren't interested in running it anymore, so... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll move on. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk some more about mountain bike racing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so you're saying 96... Uh, where, where where was that race again? Tahoe, you said? Tahoe. Squaw Valley. Yeah, Squaw Valley. And, it's and... part of the Fat Tire Festival. Okay. Cool. Yeah. That's early, 96. Yeah. That must be... So what's the... I was how... only like five years old. <laughs> sure. Five. You were this tall. Um, <laughs> yeah. How does that relate to like the history? How far back, I should say, does the history of of women racing mountain bikes go? 
I mean, were there were there women's teams early on, like in the 80s or? Or, there were women racing back in the day, and you had to do everything back back then. It was like you were a cross-country racer, downhill racer. You did it all. Gotcha. And then it started to specialize more probably in the mid-80s or mid-90s. As gear improved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I can't believe we survived on some of the equipment we had back in the day. Oh, my God. Doing, the, doing the kamikaze downhill yeah. on a four-inch travel bike with, like, elastomer forks. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> Just hauling butt. Yeah, for listeners who don't know what what elastomer means, it means foam. <laughs> like, instead of springs and air and oil, there was foam inside your fork. It's just a terrible, terrible thing. It would and be I, going, like, 45 miles an hour, two-wheel <laughs> drifting around wow. Mammoth. Yeah, well, that's the origin. Pure that's, survival. Sure. In skin suits, by the way. <laughs> I had a black and white and purple checkered skin suit that Marin had me in. It was wow. pretty awesome. Wow, you were racing for Marin. That was my very first sponsor was Marin Bikes back, way back. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wonderful. So this is all eye-opening to me in terms of women in mountain biking. So. Yeah, there weren't a lot of women in the beginning, especially at local races. There would only be a couple of us doing downhill. And then I'd go to nationals, and there was actually a lot of women in the late 90s. You'd go to a national race, and there'd be like 35, 45 women in a pro field. Wow. So there was a lot of energy for a while, and then it kind of petered off in the early 2000s. It kind of died down a little. There weren't as many races and things going on, mm-hmm. and then it's kind of ramped back up again. Are you still racing? or? I raced from 96 to about 2001. I was pro for about three years, and then I quit racing. I, I, I got like chronic f- fatigue syndrome, mm-hmm. supposedly. But really, I just had, like, adrenal issues going on. Okay. So I had to take a time out for, like, three years. Gotcha. And that's when I was like, I don't want to be in Tahoe if I'm feeling like this. So yeah. moved up to Seattle just to get away from the race world and being an intensive athlete. I just couldn't be an intensive athlete at yeah. that point in my life. Yeah. So I took a time out, came up here, uh, and then s- slowly started getting back into mountain biking. Got into road riding, actually, for a little bit. Did the STP a couple times. Cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Slept on some spandex and rode 200 miles. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, like one day? Did you do one day? I never days? did a one day, oh, okay. no. Okay. <laughs> I did 120 one day and then 80 That's the okay. next, and that was pretty sweet. That's okay. That's plenty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can rock the spandex once in a while. Awesome. Yeah, so I did, did that, uh, and then I slowly got back into mountain biking again, and my body was feeling better and better, and then I got really into it again. And yeah. I bumped myself down to Cat 1 when I moved up here, though, Mm because I just wasn't training at a pro level or anything like that. Sure. So I did Cat 1 racing, did all the Northwest Cups, and was pretty competitive at that, which was super fun. Met a lot of great people that way. Yeah. And rode for Dirt Core, which is awesome. Learned a lot from those guys. Mm -hmm. And did a lot of trail building. That's when I got more into trail building and working on that piece of the community as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'd host a lot of trail parties and get people involved in building. And then all my summer camps, for the older kids at least, we do a day of trail building and maintaining trails. And they realize how much goes into building one single berm or clearing off a trail and getting all the rocks off of it or getting all the overgrowth out of there. So it's pretty cool when they do a little bit of digging. They're like, oh, my God, they have a much deeper appreciation for it. Yeah. And they have a little bit of ownership over the trail that way as well. Yeah. So it builds a, lot, builds a lot of community that way. Cool. Yeah. So is it is it safe to jump ahead to Sweet Lines now? Or is there something in between? 
I mean, we've got Cascade covered. Yep. Which is the chunk of time between between racing, for the most part, and Sweet Lines, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. All right. Yep. So, tell me about Sweet Lines. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started coaching women probably in, like, 2007 and uh, went up to Canada as an observing coach at a spokeswoman's camp. Okay. And I was like, yeah, I was a pro racer. And Wait, I know spokeswoman's stuff. Spokeswoman's camp. Spokeswoman's camp. It's a, it was an organization that hosted women's camps up in Whistler. Okay. So I went up to take that as an observing coach, and they proceeded to reteach me how to ride. I'd been riding for, what, 12 years or something, <laughs> mm-hmm. and doing everything wrong. <laughs> so it was really like... Nothing like a Canadian to set you straight. Nothing like a Canadian to set you straight, <laughs> give you a nice chunk of humble pie, and... Uh, <laughs> It was pretty awesome, like wow. everything from my hand position on my bars to mm. being in clipless pedals and not using my feet correctly mm. to having my elbows in. We call that TRAS, Tyrannosaurus Rex Arm Syndrome. Mm. I had full-on TRAS going on. Mm. Like It was one thing after another where I was like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> this is pretty cool. So I relearned how to ride, which really helped my coaching a ton. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then got really, I really fell in love with coaching and seeing women – pushing each other and getting stoked on pushing each other and watching them progress and grow as riders. It's, it was really cool. And I was like, man, I got to do more with this. This is, this is really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so then I started studying mountain bike coaching and getting my certifications and, uh, went back to school, <clears throat> finished up university and, actually started Sweet Lines LLC out of one of my classes there. It was an entrepreneurship class. So I had a group of students helping me build up my business. And we made a business plan and talked about the name and our logos and everything. So Which school was this at? That was at UW Bothell, University okay. of Washington Bothell. Yeah. yeah, so it was really cool. It was born out of my, my school. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. yeah, a combination of passions, experience, and education and yep that's awesome that's, yeah that's 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 really impressive i mean a lot of people start businesses myself included i've done this where it's just it's just like held together with chewing gum and <laughs> and coat hangers you know and there's nothing official to it or whatever it's held together uh, with like roots and logs and mud <laughs> yes. a little bit of pink hair hair dye sure <laughs> but you have an llc I do. Which puts you way ahead of most, most new businesses, I think, in terms of organization and stuff. So Nice. It was helpful really to awesome. have everybody helping me out, building it up. Yeah. It's, yeah. Been, it's been a good learning process running my own business, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah. what does Sweet Lines do? Sweet Lines, we do mountain bike coaching and hosting events and building community. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's, what would you say is the, the bulk of that? The bulk of what I do would be kids' programs, summer camps, and a lot of women's programming as well. Okay. Yeah. So I run summer camps, eight weeks of camps from, I have an eight, year, eight to six-year-old camp for my dirt shredders, and then I have free ride camps for more advanced kids, teaching them how to hit jumps and drops and do wall rides and have better form, and uh, sometimes do downhill classes at Stevens and... Then I also want run women's programs, and I travel all over the U.S. and North America coaching women and co-ed as well, too. 
The Dirt Shredders Camp is for six to eight year olds. Okay. The Free Ride Camp is for nine to 14 year olds. And are those um, uh, co ed? They are co ed. I do have a girls' camp as well. It's and called Gravity Girls. That one's super fun. That's one of my favorite camps, not to play favorites, but hmm. it's pretty cool because not only do we teach them skills, take them riding on the trails, teach them how to fit, fix flat tires. We make inner tube jewelry out of our flat tires. Uh, <laughs> nice. But we also have girl talk every day at lunch, and we talk about girl-related issues, oh. whether it's bullying or body image mm. or how girls are marketed to. Mm how female athletes are portrayed in the media. Wow. It's pretty amazing. And if we just, we just give the girls a little bit of information, show them a video, and then we get them to talk about it. So it's using like interactive education to get them to come up with their own conclusions, whatever those might be. Sure. So it's pretty profound when they start realizing how they're marketed to yeah. and realizing what girl colors are versus boy colors. And, you know, that... Girl toys are all about being pretty and looking good versus boy toys, which are about adventure and kicking butt. Mm -hmm. So it's really fascinating when girls start realizing that and putting that together and be like, that's not that's not me. That's what they're telling me I'm supposed to be, but it's not me. Yeah. It's not who I am. Or at the very least that they have a choice. Yes. Being able to recognize that they do have a choice. Yeah. Which is, it's kind of funny coming for me because I have pink hair. <laughs> but for me, pink hair is kind of rebellious. Uh, and sure. Like, I don't like light pink. I only like hot pink. <laughs> but it's funny because some people really hate pink and what it represents. And right. some people really embrace it. And honestly, as a kid growing up, I hated pink. I was not a pink girl at all. Yeah. And so it's been funny later in life to kind of embrace yeah, it. And it kind yeah. of, for me, it kind of balances out my tomboy sides with my girly sides. Sure. You know, so I... I like to think of myself as girly tough, uh -huh. <laughs> and my hot pink hair is part of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yep, that's awesome. So helping helping uh, young girls with identity and understanding yeah. who, who they are or who they could be, and that and letting them be who they want to be. Sure, letting them be tough or not, whatever they want to be. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. But uh, getting back to my question, are the are the camps the other camps? Um, co-ed do they end up being co-ed like do boys the other show up? camps are co-ed yes i have tons of boys in my camps for Wonderful. sure yeah yeah the other camps are primarily boys i try to get as many girls into them as possible too oh interesting although okay. my last dirt shredders camp last year mm -hmm. i had equal girls to boys in that camp and we're talking six to eight year olds yeah so i had little girls in their little pink armor and all they wanted to do was jump bikes. Yeah. It was really fun. It's really, really fun bringing up those girls, those next generations. Yeah. It's pretty fun to see. Yeah, that's really cool to, to get to be a part of that yeah. influence on um, young athletes, up-and-coming athletes, whether they continue mountain biking or not. It's, they're yeah. never going to forget those experiences <laughs> yeah, at definitely. your camps. So that's, yeah. that's awesome. Really cool. So you're, I'm sorry, you're how far into Sweet Lines? When did you start again? Started 2011, <clears throat> but okay. last year was my very first year. So 2014 was my first year just doing Sweet Lines. Full time. Full time coaching. Uh huh. Yeah. And developing programs and all that stuff. Yeah. Which I would imagine is an ongoing pro project, just figuring out how you want to do it and yeah. what, what to add on, what to weed out, what makes the most sense and all that. Yeah, you mentioned earlier you feel spread uh, thin with a lot going on right now. Or yeah. was that a 
comment on location I've or kind of, so i've kind of been on the road a lot lately yeah. and you know it's kind of survival as a coach in the winter time mm, that i need to be sure. on the road and going to warmer locations to pick up coaching yeah so i've been to arizona down down in chico i'm living in santa cruz for the winter mm-hmm. i'm here for two weeks i go to la coaching for two weeks and then i also work for imba as an instructor trainer so they fly me all over the u.s doing that about once a month wow so I'm, I'm piecemealing it in the winter in the spring and summer i'm just slammed with business in seattle so i just stay here for those times and then jet set in the off seasons yeah yeah how do you feel about that i i love it i'm definitely a nomad so this is I, the first year of that of really like like all in with coaching during the winter and having to or let's say getting to do a lot of traveling to to kind of keep the business happening through the slower, well, what would be slower in Seattle. Yep, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And it gives me an excuse to see my family down in California, too. I have three nieces, and my mom's down there. My dad's in Arizona, so mm-hmm. I use that as excuses to pick up coaching in those areas as well. Yeah. But, yeah, I definitely, like, make it work in a non-traditional kind of way that works well for me, for how, how I like to live my life. I don't like being in one place all the time. I like to be on the go a little bit, have my home bases in different places, mm-hmm. and then be able to travel and roam and see the world, meet new people. It's pretty nice. I like it. I'm envious, <laughs> as I'm sure many people. There are some people listening to this right now that are on their way to their desk job, their 9 to 5, and um, they're jealous. I don't even Aww. have to ask them. I just know. <laughs> they have great things, too, that I don't have, yep. I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> no, Grass is always greener, right? That's right. It's always greener. And you have your challenges. I do, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely had to get rid of a lot of stuff to make this work. Got rid of the house. Got rid of my safe job with my medical insurance that was awesome. And, yeah. you know, dental and all the security blankets. I had to get rid of the, those in order to do what I want to do with my life. So, yeah, it can be real scary sometimes, especially when you get injured mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, hmm, how am I going to make ends meet right now? <laughs> sure, sure. But, yeah, finding ways to make that work. Yeah. It's been a good challenge. Yeah, so uh, so as we approach the end of your first winter of of uh, being spread thin, you feel like if you want to do it again next winter? Yeah, definitely. I think I'll go back to Santa Cruz for the winter mm-hmm. and make that a home base and keep picking up work in warmer clim- climates. Yeah. And then coming back here for spring, summer, and most of fall as well. Oh, that sounds just awful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you know again, what's terrible is hearing the ocean waves crashing at night while I'm sleeping. <laughs> the sea lions barking in the distance. Okay, it's kind of awesome. Okay, I'll stop. shut up now. <laughs> You'll notice I have a little suntan going on I too, do, working I do on notice. my vitamin D intake. Mm-hmm. Excellent coloration. <laughs> Thanks. So- <laughs> That's a byproduct of uh-huh. my awesome life. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. No, that's so that's so cool. I'm happy for you. Thanks. Um So, moving on to what? Where should we go next from here? Where would you like to go from here? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much. There's you know, coaching with injuries and there's Oh yeah, let's talk about injuries real quick. Mm. I do talk to everybody about injuries because it's a reality mm-hmm. of mountain biking. Um, oh, nice scar! Thank you. I just Sorry. showed off my um, my um, collarbone fracture from December fourteenth, two thousand fourteen. Oh, nice. Um, which I'm still still healing from. Therefore, not much riding lately. But 
That's our okay. scars are kind of our battles or our badges of honor, don't you think? <laughs> I think so. I don't mind a scar. Yeah. I honestly don't. I tend to have fun with them. I, but I've been fortunate in that my scars haven't been extremely debilitating. You know, yeah. I've got a steel plate in my shoulder. My shoulder's stronger than anybody else's now for the most part. It's like bionics. <laughs> it's like bionics. I've got double cadaver and beautiful scars and <laughs> a slightly uh, deformed wrist, <laughs> but um, it works. Yeah. I saw the, <laughs> I, I saw the x-rays when that. Oh, you saw those. Happened. Those are pretty good. Hey? Yeah. Well, and honestly, I made it 25 years of mountain biking with no surgeries. So I decided to get her, get her done, done all in one year, <laughs> 2013. I had two surgeries, double cadaver parts and. Wow. Know, okay. Yeah, get so, her done. So <laughs> batching called batching. Batching. There so, you go. <laughs> so tell me about the first injury. First injury, total freak accident. I had a midair collision with another rider at a bike park. I followed too close behind her. She wasn't sure where she was going, and her line was supposed to cut right. She accidentally cut left, and I didn't see her till I was in the air. So we had this really unfortunate collision, and uh, luckily she was okay, And uh, but my arm kind of crumbled. I felt it crumbling underneath me as I pancaked mm. against the wood floor. <laughs> mm. And, uh, yeah, so it dislocated and fractured my elbow, shattered my wrist my wrist was completely sideways and uh, honestly the wrist didn't even hurt the elbow man dislocating your elbow is really painful Mm. (laughs) actually had to take an ambulance for that one even you don't think you'd need an ambulance for an arm injury oops sorry that's okay but yeah i definitely had to go in the ambulance wow it's my first ambulance ride just because of the pain there was no no moving without uh, professional help. i made it like five steps and i was like all right grab me wow (laughs) Yeah, that was a good one. I'm sorry, where was that again? That was uh, somewhere else. Oh. <laughs> I'm uh, not going to tell you. We're not saying where. <laughs> it was just at a park somewhere, you know. Okay. I was just riding park. Okay, that's Cause cool. Because I, I only ride park. <laughs> <laughs> She's kidding, folks. Uh-huh. But she, but, I'm kind of not kidding. <laughs> okay, but but uh, not sharing the, the location. Nah, that's nah. cool. That's cool. It's irrelevant. All right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you said you slammed into the wood floor. So. I slammed into a wood floor. We'll mm-hmm. leave it at that. Yeah. And, yep. you, and you felt your arm disintegrate under you as you fell. Yep. Yeah. And that was three months off the bike. Um, took a long time to, to rehab that arm back and get my strength and everything. But I'll, I'll always remember that first bike ride back on the bike path. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. It was like the best feeling ever after three months off the bike getting on the bike path and I was just smiling and laughing the whole time I'm by myself (laughs) laughing my ass off going oh my god I'm on a bike (laughs) it was pretty cool it was funny too because my friend Anita had done her collarbone a week after I did my arm we were on the same kind of recovery program and so a week after I had my first day back on the bike path I took her for her first day on the bike path and she was the exact same way we're both just laughing we're like Never take it for granted. Yeah. You know, bike paths are kind of amazing sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yep, just getting on a bike. Just being on a bike, mm-hmm. being riding, feeling the wind in your hair and the sun on your skin. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah, sure. Okay, so that was injury number one. <laughs> that was number one. 2013. So nine months later, I was uh, not listening to myself. Mm-hmm. I was being really stubborn, and I'm like, man, I just need to come back from this arm injury and hit some more jumps and... I was crooked all day long. I was getting more and more crooked, and I wasn't listening to myself. I was being stubborn. I was like, man, I just need to push through. Define crooked. 
crooked. I was like, my body was crooked. My arm wasn't quite straight. And every time I was landing, I was just kind of off. I sure. was just off all day. And usually I listen to that and that's how I've stayed safe this many years. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't listening to myself. Great lesson learned. So I went into this jump line. I was getting crooked. I decided to bail out last minute. I was heading towards the edge, grab brake. My brake wasn't working, put a foot down and it just snapped the knee backwards. I didn't even crash and I had to like tip over to stop moving. So snapped my ACL and fractured my tibial plateau on that one. Hung out for the rest of the day, barking orders at my friends. Eh, eh, jump bigger, go faster, <laughs> like yelling from, from the <laughs> sidelines, laughing. Didn't realize how injured I was at that point. But uh, yeah, and then I wasn't sure if I had an insurance at that point either. So mm. I spent two weeks waiting because I'd applied for insurance and I didn't know if it had gone through. So it was a really terrifying two weeks. And I did have insurance, thank goodness. So I was able to go to a doctor and... And sure enough, I'd snap the ACL. So I was seven weeks on crutches. And then it was probably another mm -hmm. three months before mountain biking. Got back on the spin bike pretty quick. Okay. But honestly, my surgeon told me that I wouldn't be strong for eight months. And I was like, yeah, whatever. You don't know who you're dealing with. Sure. It was 10 months before I got oh. my strength back. Oh, man. So I was out coaching in Duthie Park and my knee was unstable and not strong and it was really scary it was scary times for me for sure yeah yeah so knees they take a while they're not joking about that hmm. a lot of lot of perseverance to get that sucker back i'm yeah. fortunate i've never had a knee injury good um, knock on wood right now mm. <laughs> done okay but i i know uh, i know a couple people who have who've had knee replacements and they um were very quick to be walking again as knee replacements in, are great within They've a come whole so new far. knee yeah sure but that's got nothing to do with athleticism you know getting getting up and walking versus you know landing a jump are two different completely different things the surgeries are totally different too though for knee replacement i, I believe the recovery is much faster than an acl acls weird. take a long long time that's so weird it's really weird my dad had a knee replacement probably four months before i did my acl so he was back riding within two weeks. He was skiing within four months. Like, he came back hard from that. Wow. It was great. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you'd think that replacing a knee, everything would be destroyed in right? there. Right? <laughs> like, you'd have you to would start think. over. But, okay. It's so, amazing what they do with those. Yeah. So, yeah. I'll, so I'll tell my, um, my AC, acromion clavicular, which is the soft tissue joint at the tip of the shoulder, and um, a rotator cuff story which is doesn't exist because when i <laughs> broke my the story doesn't exist except to say that when i broke my collarbone i you know i slammed into the ground i came up short on a double and smashed into to the ground and, and it just it broke uh it three breaks in my right clavicle uh. and then when i went in for the surgical the pre-surgical con consultation with the the hotshot surgeon at um at harborview the red team uh <laughs> ortho leader I asked him, you know, so what's the condition of my AC and other shoulder tendons going to be after this? And he said, well, let's find out. So he put ran me through. I'm sitting there with, with my collarbone in four pieces, and he ran me through all the strength tests for rotator cuff and AC no <laughs> injuries. Way. Oh, yeah. my God. Was that painful? Yeah. 
<laughs> well, no, because you'd be surprised at how little a um, having a, a collarbone in multiple pieces um, hurts. It, it, there are certain mm-hmm. things about it that hurt, but I mean, I was I had a lot of a lot of range of motion, even though it was in pieces. Basically, between the time that you break break it and the time that you get surgery, obviously the, there's no healing going on. But because humans are so adapted to having broken collarbones, it's a terrible bone in a terrible location. Yeah. Um, like, for example, it would have healed back together all on its own without having surgery. What? It just would have been jagged. Oh. One of the surgeons told me that if you put two pieces of collarbone in a room together, they'll find each other. <laughs> That's how effective that bone is at healing itself. It's like magnetic. Yeah, <clears throat> like knitting, like like invasion of the body snatchers. You know, Whoa. stuff stretching across the room. But I think nice. he was, I think he was being absurd. Except that, to some extent, it's true. You see people huh. with self-healing collarbones all the time. It's jagged and ugly. But yep. anyway, point is that. Um, yeah, my my AC and and uh, rotator cuff are just fine. Perfect. And the surgeons out there right on that day and said, oh yeah, no problem, you know. <laughs> so it's just the bone. That's awesome. Yeah, pretty cool. But yeah. you know, getting back to being comfortable enough to land land a jump is, I'm being very careful about that. So the mental a- <clears throat> comeback is probably the hardest part of an injury, hmm. where you're afraid to try stuff and. For me, as a coach who specializes in free ride, I have to come back. Yeah. Like, that's what I love. I love being in the air. Sure. So my, fir- my f- first days of jumping are terrifying every time. I'm like, okay, have I forgotten how to do this? Yeah. You have this, like, self-doubt, and you think you've forgotten everything, and you just have to give yourself time to build back up and give yourself the time. Don't push too hard. <laughs> yep. Push a little bit and focus on how it feels and listen to yourself. So you don't end up hurting something else along the way. Hmm. Good to know. It's been great, though, learning that process of healing and the mental piece of it as a coach. I can relate to my students who get hurt. Not in my classes, of course. Of course not. You know, once in a while people get hurt. (laughs) Sure. Well, and that's the point of talking about injuries uh, on this show is that injuries are a part of mountain biking. Sorry, folks. That's the reality. Um, and, and, you know, you made a comment 25 years of riding without any surgeries. Um, when, whenever somebody who's a non-mountain biker says, well, I bet you're not going to do that again. You know, I think actually I'm going to do it as soon as I possibly can. The jump that threw me, um, I'm going to go back there ASAP and nail that jump. And that's all there is to it. And furthermore, um, riding mountain bikes since 1983 crashed my bike thousands of times, literally various bicycles thousands of times had no surgeries mountain biking doesn't owe me anything it's been nothing but amazing and if i can get away with uh i broke three bones in my right hand once no surgery um and then my clavicle you know (laughs) that would be awesome if those are the only injuries i ever had (laughs) that's pretty great (laughs) it's pretty darn good it's not terrible at all right but the point is that um injuries are a, a fact of mountain biking especially uh jumping especially dirt jumping and free ride and downhill. Um, yeah. It happens. You get hurt. Um, the best thing to do is try to understand why and grow grow beyond it And the next time you get on the bike, right? Yep, come back stronger. Yeah, speaking of which, uh, what what are you doing or have you done in order to rebuild strength? I mean, I, without getting into every detail of physical therapy, but generally speaking. What haven't I done is the question. Okay. Physical therapy, <clears throat> acupuncture, mm. I've done prolotherapy. I've done what's prolotherapy? 
prolotherapy, they st- stick needles in you to, to build up your ligaments. Oh, interesting. It's kind of rad. Huh. I have some co- cool video footage of it, actually. I will put that in the show notes. It's a little creepy. Mm-hmm. You can feel it inside of your ligament, and they put some sort of stuff in there that helps it get stronger. Wow. Yeah, it's controversial. I think it definitely helped me. I've done this other kind of healing where they, like, move your energy in your body and get it flowing better. Uh, I've been to all kinds of healers to come back and get back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chiropractic. Kind of a shotgun like approach. Throw That's a right. lot of stuff at, at it to a lot of different angles on healing to try and maximize the... Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yep. Try strength, to get balanced. Strength training? Lots of strength training. Go to the gym a lot. Gym. The gym is... Not my favorite place, but it is my, my, uh, what would I call it? It's like preventative medicine. Sure. The stronger I can be, the less injuries I have. Hallelujah. So the gym has always been a little piece of my, my puzzle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's, let's talk about a new feature. Uh, that is, you're standing at the top of a new feature. Mm-hmm. Something that's maybe a little bigger than you used to, maybe a lot bigger, or just new and different. Um, I assume you walk everything before you ride it. Walk the line, mm-hmm. step number one. Mm-hmm. So you're not out there following some animal down d- down some some crazy downhill section without looking at it first. I'm not a hucker. Okay. I don't just, just go for it the first time. Oh, just go for it. Right. No, I'm very calculated in Send how I build up. <laughs> yeah. Point it, bro. Yeah. No, I like to be real calculated, so... If I go to a new park, I'm checking out a new jump, I measure it. So I will walk beside it, go lip to lip, and measure it. How big is the gap jump that I'm looking at? Maybe it's a 10-foot gap, and I've already done a 15-foot gap. Then I'll calculate how steep is the takeoff, how steep is the landing. Have I done a takeoff that big or a landing that big? Is it angled? Is it straight? How's my run-in? How's my run-out? Do I have time to correct in my run-out? And I factor in all those pieces of it then that helps my mind to be able to know, okay, I've already done something similar. Sometimes I'll even think about, is there a jump at a different park that I know that looks similar or seems similar in some way? And then I can relate it in my mind. Oh, this looks like the drop on Semper Diurticus. And I've already done a drop bigger than this. So That's a line at Duthie Mountain Bike Park in Issaquah, Washington, Semper Diurticus. Go on. Yep. So... I can relate those pieces of it and use those calculations to help my brain say, hey, I can do this. Yeah. Um, someone last year taught me a red light, yellow light, green light. So green light is, yeah, totally got it. I can do that. Red light is no way in heck am I going to hit that thing. Sure. Yellow light is the place I like to be where I'm trying to turn yellow lights into green lights. Mm. So there's something in me that's maybe not quite ready, almost ready. How do I get myself ready? So I like to think about the different pieces of what I need to do. I've already calculated how big it is. I've related it to something I've already done. Now I'm going to focus on the pieces of how to do it correctly. I need to pedal here. I need to coast into it and set up here. I need to preload here, punch out here, whatever it is, whichever feature I'm doing. And then I'll focus on those pieces. I do a lot of visualization where I'll run up to the edge without a bike and visualize myself going over the edge. Um, I will take a couple of toe-ins, speed checks, where I follow somebody to see how much speed they have, see how that feels. 
then when I know, okay, I've got this, then I know I'm ready, then I'll find somebody I really, really trust who's on the same style bike that I am. If they're on a hardtail and I'm on a downhill bike, it's not going to be the same. Somebody I really trust, like old man Jim, and I'll have him tow me into it. (laughs) Or I'll have Tammy Donahue or whoever it is tow me in for my first lap. Wait, Jim who? Old man Jim? Jim yeah. McCracken. Oh, okay. He's one of my favorite tower inners. Okay. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Love it. Uh, yeah, it's good to have those people that you trust who you can follow into a line. And I usually, I use those training wheels a couple laps, like two, three times, follow that same person, get a feel for the speed, what it feels like to land it. And then I take off the training wheels and do it by myself and cool. force myself to do it at least a couple times by myself. Yeah. Some, sometimes if you do it just one time, you're like, oh, maybe that was a fluke. Yeah. So you have to do it at least a couple times to, so you know in your brain that, yeah, I can do this yeah. by myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's all really actionable stuff. That's like, you just, Kat just gave us a free coaching session, folks. <laughs> uh, thank you, Lucky Stars. The secret to my <clears throat> madness. <laughs> that's, that's really, those are really wonderful tips. Um, I mean, I, I not being a, a professional coach and only, only having had minimal professional coaching i've i've experienced all of those things in bits and pieces either figuring it out myself or someone will say dude just follow me you know which Mm -hmm. by the way following someone into a line is such a powerful thing you know just that in and of itself someone who can already ride it you know um just as a speed check or give you an idea of what it's going to take to get through it uh all that stuff and everybody's different in how they learn. Some people like those toe-ins. Some people like to just do it by themselves. They don't like to be distracted. So everybody's different in how they learn things. Well, that's so interesting. Figuring out how you like to do it is important. I always find that out about my students as well. Would you like a lead-in or do you like doing it on your own? And sometimes they know, sometimes they don't. So you can try it one time and see how that goes for them. Yeah, whether or not it clicks. Yeah. Interesting. Are you finding yourself having to slow people down? Like, whoa, slow down, cowboy. Occasionally. Occasionally that happens where I reel them in and, okay, baby steps. Let's start here, then we'll work our way up to there. (laughs) That thing you're trying may may be ahead of you. Yeah, occasionally that happens. And then sometimes it's the opposite where you're building people up and helping them realize their own potential and building up their confidence and making them realize they've already done this size of a drop. This is only six inches higher. You've already done something similar here and translating those pieces so that they can push themselves. Sure. So they can visualize that it's a possibility. Yeah. Help them recognize that. Yeah. Isn't that funny how just the slightest difference in terrain or surroundings can make something seem so extremely different. And then you uh-huh. go, wait a minute. Yeah. It's like a f- one foot higher right. with a slight more of an angle transition or something in it. But it just seems like colossal. That's why I like to measure. Like I measure lip to lip on jumps so I know how big of jumps I've done. And I measure in my own feet. And I can take that measurement anywhere else that I go. Same thing with drops. I'll stand underneath a drop and I'll measure from the takeoff to where the ground is underneath it. And of course you're going to go a lot farther than that. But I know I've done a head high drop or, you know, a shoulder high, knee high, whatever it is on your own body. I can take that measurement to any other park, and I know I've already done one this high. What's different? What's the same? Mm-hmm. And translate that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Cool, that's great. You're very methodical. But I, I suppose <laughs> I suppose you would have to be when you're dealing with other people's uh, safety and well-being. 
Definitely. So. And I, I like not getting hurt, so mm -hmm. it's definitely a piece that helps keep you safer. Yeah, absolutely. Here's a question. <laughs> when you think of writers that you look up to, is there someone that comes to mind, and this could be professional or maybe somebody, you know, personally that isn't necessarily, one of the things we're doing here is, um, you know, I'm interviewing people that aren't, aren't necessarily pros, aren't necessarily high profile, but extraordinary. Uh -huh. um, so male or female, pro or not, is there someone that really, when you see them ride, you go, wow, like really blows your mind or really impressive in attitude or skill or whatever? There's so, I have so many people who inspire me in Heroes. riding. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, Tammy Donahue's one of my favorite jumpers to watch. She's absolutely fluid in how she rides. Beautiful rider. And she's also one of my besties. So I love riding with her. She definitely inspires me a lot. Uh, the, the ladies who started our, our ride style movement. So Stephanie Nitschke, Gail Dallager. There's been so many women who've, been helping bring up our sport along the way. Um, current riders that I think are amazing. Brittany White. Okay. Amazing White. rider. Mm -hmm. um, there's women all over the world right now who are coming up too. There's this chick in Spain named Gemma. Gemma? I don't know how you say her name, but she's amazing. Jumper. Um, we'll have a as far as like attitude and stuff, I mean, yeah. who have inspired me? There's like... Marilyn Price, who started Trips for Kids. She's okay. like in her 70s, and she still runs the International Trips for Kids program. So not only is she a cyclist through and through to her heart, but she is the most giving person that I've ever met. Wow. So she's been, been a huge in inspiration to me. Uh, Marla Streb. Sure. You know, back in the day, she was always like, always had a smile on her face, super sick rider, super friendly, and super fun to ride with, too. Yeah. No attitude. I like those pros that don't have the attitude, who are really friendly and bringing up other people along the way as well. Yeah, I remember watching the career of uh, Anne Caroline Chasson. Oh yeah, man, she was amazing. Amazing. I don't know if she's still racing, but she would follow Cedric Gracia all over France or whatever, and she was just a monster. <laughs> she was. It was so fun. I was racing the Norba races when she came onto the scene. Really? We'd all just stand there and watch her, and we're like, "Oh my God, she's amazing." <laughs> That's, yeah, super fun to watch. That's cool. Yeah. So we'll have a follow-up conversation, um, and I'll put the, some of these names you mentioned in show notes so people can cool. look into them further. Yeah. So anything that you want to uh, finish up with regarding Sweet Lines? Um, what's, what's coming up? Coming up? Yeah. I get to go to L.A. and coach for a women's program there, coach for IMBA. I get to do the... Santa Cruz Mountain Bike Festival, Sea Otter. Then I'm coming back up here for May. I have all my spring and summer programs, ladies programs, summer camps, and Sugar Showdown. Sure. My women's event. Uh-huh. Is it at Duthie again? That's a Duthie, 4th of July weekend. Okay. We do one day of coaching, one day of competition. We make the competition really fun. It's not just about winning. It's about improve, improving your own riding and your own style along the way. Uh-huh. So that's a blast. I love that. It's one of my favorite events to host for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So your your classes are filling up here in Seattle. And, classes are filling up. Camps if, are getting sold out. If you've got if you wanna um, if you wanna get involved, be it with your kids or yourself, now's the time to go to 
what's the URL? Sweetlines.com. Sweetlines.com and um, and sign up for a class, yeah? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Cool. And I'm sure they can see some of your schedule on there as well. Yep, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cat Sweet. You're so welcome. Thanks this, for having me. This has been fun. And I hope we get to do it again sometime. Uh, I do, I'll do. i be doing follow-up interviews and, sorry, conversations. I'm trying to take the I word out of this uh-huh. thing. It's so much more fun when we just talk. So, <laughs> um, Anyway, so, yeah, thank you. It's It's been a pleasure. And um, I look forward thank to you. following your career and, and seeing what comes next with Sweet Lines and everything else. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay. All right. Again, a huge thanks to Kat Sweet for taking the time to share her story on the MTB Jumper podcast. Listeners, head over to SweetLines.com, take a look at the video from the 2016 Sugar Showdown at the top of that page. You'll see some Groms and other SweetLines students hitting gaps and generally ripping out at Duthie Hill Park. So much fun. Also, click on the calendar link at the top of that page to see the SweetLines schedule of classes, private lessons, and other awesome events, including the Sugar Showdown for 2017, which takes place June 30th through July 2nd. And if you're not following Kat on Facebook and Instagram already, well, get to it. Links to her account, as well as other stuff related to this conversation, are in the show notes for this episode, which can be found at mtbjumper.com slash cat. That's K-A-T. Okay, for episode three, next Thursday, June 8th, I've got Chris Olivier of PSBMX.com, a powerhouse web presence of progressive mountain biking. Check out his site and get stoked for that episode. And if you're in the Lions, Colorado area on June 3rd, don't miss Outlaws of Dirt. That's a PSBMX event. Details, video, and other awesomeness are at outlawsofdirt.com. Finally, do me a huge favor. Head over to facebook.com slash mtbjumperpodcast and mash on that like button. Set up to follow the post so you can see all the amazeballs stuff that's coming your way via the Facebook site. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, make time to ride your bike. Make it a priority because if you're anything like me, mountain biking is imperative to your sanity. Okay, this is Norman Peterson. Thanks again for listening. See you next week. Thank you.